Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This is the fourth and final week of Advent, and we approach now the sacred heart of, of the mystery that births our faith, the incarnation of God, the enfleshment of God. I love this season. I love especially the sense of, of merriment and, and wonder that sort of spreads inside the church and outside of the church. Um, it's funny how the culture now is full of sort of vague nods to this merriment, to, to family and, and thanksgiving and peace and joy. I, I read an article that Jesse shared with me about the incarnation, and in it, Professor Fred Sanders, he wrote this, and I, I'm on board with this sentiment. These days, I can hardly stay mad at a Coca-Cola Santa, <laughs> meaning what's going on out there in the world is it's somehow loosely connected to what's going on in here in some sort of vague way. And we might kind of look at it with some sense of, of like, oh, silly people don't know what this is about. But isn't it kind of cool that the world, in some ways, is joining in this celebration? It doesn't really even fully understand. <clears throat> There's the charm of, of holiday favorites, Miracle on 34th Street, for some of you. You've got mail in my house. There's Rudolph. There's Buddy the Elf. And then there's, as Sanders observed, there's, there's nothing quite like pumping gas and hearing veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, blasted above your head at the gas station. The world is just sort of awkwardly joining in this movement it doesn't really get. And that's beautiful because the incarnation is, after all, for every human being on the planet. Characters in holiday films are perpetually seeking the true meaning of Christmas, and almost always settling for some sort of theologically inadequate answer. Sanders writes, but perhaps in this annual seeking, there's itself a kind of parable. Maybe the weary world has some befuddled sense that their very humanity gives them a stake in this, this public rehearsal of the love of God. Well, for anyone and everyone interested in listening this morning, this morning I want to explore this, this ancient and true source of all this merriment and wonder. Uh, through the prophet Isaiah that we just heard read, Isaiah 7. Over the past three weeks, Isaiah has given us these images, three distinct images now, of restoration. The first week, a light dawning. James preached on that the first week. The second week, I talked about this shoot growing up from the stump of Jesse. And then this third, last week, this, this, this image of a desert blooming that Jesse preached on. These are, these are sort of prophetic imaginings. Um, and these imaginings nurture and, and evoke hope within us. Hope that one day that all is wrong and dry and dark will be made right and vital and light. So three weeks ago, I, I praised Advent for its honesty. I said Advent is an honest season. Notice that such images that were given admit a deep need for restoration. They admit that something is wrong, a dry desert, a darkness, a parched land. And don't you and I know that in this season? Some of us are all in on the merriment and wonder, but for some of us, this season's really hard. Here are five, five true stories that I know just from the past couple of months. A young couple struggling with infertility shares an apartment wall with a family of four, constant reminder of their deep grief. A wife and a mother of five children abandoned by her husband. A student is torn between relentless studies 
the need to earn income, and the inability to have friendships because they're always working and studying or sleeping just enough to get by. And so they're lonely. A loving spouse of 50 years unexpectedly dies. A pastor is burnt out and addicted and rightfully removed from ministry because he took care of everyone but himself and he, he lost his way. I mean, this is to say nothing of, of war and widespread mental illness and human trafficking, and we could go on and on. Advent is a time to be honest about our need for, for restoration and our need for hope. Each of us, each, maybe right now, just name it in your own heart, ways that you are looking for light to dawn and for the desert to bloom and shoots to grow, or, or the way you know your loved ones are. And this, this sense of desolation calls for more than just holiday distractions, more than a temporary blind eye in favor of a hot cup of cocoa and a cra- crackling fire and, and Buddy the Elf, although that's a really good place to start. Sounds really nice. But we need more than that. Such de- desolation, it, it needs more than distraction. It, it needs Emmanuel. It needs God with us. This last week of Advent, the church in her wisdom gives us Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. And this text is a little bit confusing. So I think the best way is just to move through it verse by verse. If you have a Bible on your phone or, or, or with you, it might be helpful to open it to Isaiah 7 because I am just going to move through verse by verse. It might be helpful to, to follow along. And we're going to reflect on then after we move through it verse by verse, the heart of this passage, the, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. So beginning in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Okay, we read in verse 10, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And here right away we have our characters and we have a plot. So let's get clear on the characters first. Ahaz is the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom after the the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, so the plot is King Ahaz of Judah is the first character. And our second character is Yahweh, the Lord God. Now, the plot is, is that Yahweh is asking King Ahaz of Judah for a sign. Why is he asking uh, Ahaz to ask him for a sign? Well, did I get the slides in there? Are there any slides back there? Great. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. I didn't even double check. But here's a map that sort of helps us understand what's going on here. The preceding verses make the situation geopolitically very clear. The two kings of the nations in the north, so here's Judah, here in the south, Israel there into the north, and then further up you see Aram. So Israel and Aram have entered an alliance, and they are now pressuring Judah to enter that alliance with them, an alliance against Assyria. So the kingdom of Assyria, the big kingdom kind of to the north, um, west, east, excuse me, is amassing power, and they're, they're kind of marching the direction of Israel and Judah and Aram. And so Israel and Aram have said, all right, Judah, we want you to stand with us, but Ahaz, the king of Judah, refuses this alliance which makes Aram and Israel very mad. They want to strengthen their alliance. And so now Israel and Aram are marching on Judah to replace King Ahaz with kind of their own king who will join their alliance. So they're trying to depose Ahaz and set up a new new king who who will join them. So before there was Game of Thrones, there was Isaiah 7, you see. So Ahaz has a decision to make. There's 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 a fork in the road before him. And like most decisions we make, it's both a very practical one and a very theological one. Who will Ahaz turn to for help? What's he going to do? On the one hand, there's, there's Yahweh, 
who has said to him just moments ago in Isaiah 7, 4, Ahaz, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And he's referring to the king of Israel and the king of Aram. Don't be afraid because they're coming. Don't worry, I've, I've got your back. I'm with you, says God. Okay, so Yahweh has promised protection, but there's still an army heading south. So then why not make a backup plan, Ahaz thinks to himself. Ahaz decides he has a better solution than Yahweh's promise of protection, so he turns actually to the local superpower, Assyria itself. So back to the map. He actually goes to the king of Assyria and offers an enormous tribute of gold from the temple. So gold that was given to Yahweh, he now gives to the king of Assyria, showing where his trust really lies, paying this superpower to protect him and instead attack his enemies. And that's the geopolitical context in which the Lord graciously offers Ahaz proof of his protection. He says, Ahaz, I'm, I'm with you. Ask me for a sign. Just ask me anything you want and I'll prove it to you. I'm with you. Trust me. And then in verse 12, Ahaz responds, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So Ahaz refuses God's invitation to this, you know, with this very shallow appeal to piety. It, it looks pious. After all, testing God is, is not something you want to do. Deuteronomy 6.16 says as much. But the issue here, the issue there, in fact, was that we don't test God because it evidences a lack of responsive trust in him. But here is God graciously asking Ahaz to trust him through this means, and Ahaz re- kind of twists scripture to refuse it. So one, one thing we've got to point out here is that piety is not the same as, as actual faith. Piety is, is the appearance of religion, Well, actual trust in God is the substance of religion. So Ahaz is sort of appearing pious, but in his piety, he's actually refusing to trust God completely. So the mighty Assyria is more real to Ahaz than the might of the Almighty God. Ahaz has chosen his path. He's going to trust in Assyria's protection instead of God's. Isaiah is not pleased, to say the least. So in verse 13, Isaiah sort of rebukes him. He says, Hear then, O house of David. That's one thing we're going to talk about. Why is he suddenly speaking to the house of David instead of Ahaz? Hear then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you must weary my God also. Isaiah's words here, they pack a, like a theological sledgehammer in a slight sentence. So to appreciate their weight, I just want to point out two things. First, notice we're suddenly talking about the house of David instead of Ahaz. Why? Well, if you ask an Old Testament scholar, what are like the three most important scriptures in the Old Testament. One of the things they'll say is 2 Samuel 7, where we read of God's promise to the house of David to make the house of David an eternal kingdom. So David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And by the way, David, I'm also going to build you a kingdom. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 11, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. I, the Lord, will raise up for you, David, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, meaning from your lineage, And I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that is a promise. That is an anchor of the Old Testament theology, covenant theology. So the house and lineage of David, Ahaz is a part of that lineage. Okay, he he is a son of David. It's the chosen lineage through which God is going to build his kingdom. And this promise sort of sort of carries like a ray of light through the clouds. And finally, it rests upon the the ground in the New Testament in Matthew 1.1, where we read this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
Matthew is very clearly saying, here it is, right? But this son of David, Ahaz, has rejected Yahweh and he's trusted in Syria, Assyria instead, and this is a turning point. This is a major turning point for the house of David. Not just for Ahaz, but for the house of David as a whole. It, the house of David has now utterly abandoned faith in Yahweh. And from a human point of view, then the dynasty is, is going to soon be destroyed. What of God's promises? What do we do now? Would the, would the house of David go down in, in the flames of, of, the, of the house of David's unfaithfulness? Or would God still keep his promises? And the second thing to notice is the shift from your God in verse 11 to my God in verse 14 or 13. Suddenly Isaiah is saying, is it too much that you would weary men, but also you must weary my God, whereas before he's calling Yahweh Ahaz's God? It's a subtle shift of language, but really it implies that the house of David no longer knows Yahweh at all. And so Isaiah goes on in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Yahweh decides to go ahead and give a sign anyways, despite Ahaz's refusal. And we come now to this famous prophecy. But it's not immediately clear how it fits in this context that I've been explaining, so let me see if I can unpack it. It seems that this prophecy had both a, an immediate and a long-term fulfillment. In the immediate sense, the prophecy is far more perplexing. We know long-term, this is pointing to Jesus, but in the immediate sense, what's, what's going on? There are a lot of scholarly theories here. I'll try to bore you the details, but just make it simple about who's being talked about here. I think the best theory is probably we're talking about Isaiah's son, not to be outdone by Elon Musk, who wonderfully uh, names his son. What, what did he name his kids again? I don't remember. Does anyone know? Something very strange. It's like key or something. Anyway, anyways, not to be outdone by Elon Musk, uh, uh, Isaiah names his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil seeds, the prey hastens. Kind of an ominous, ominous name. We meet him in chapter 8. The mother of this child doesn't need to be a virgin. In fact, the NRSV, which we read this morning, that Sarah read, translates young woman. Sometimes it's young maiden. Some translations do opt for virgin. This is a confusing word in Hebrew. But it really doesn't refer to sexual experience. It refers to someone who's young and, and probably unmarried um, or soon to be married. Now, I'll spare you the gritty details, but one of the reasons I believe this is Isaiah's son is that in verse 15, we are told that by the time this boy reaches the age of accountability, which is usually around 12, he knows evil from good, the threat of Israel and Aram is going to be destroyed. So God says, by the time this son who's going to be born reaches 12-ish years old, these two kings are no longer going to be threatening you. And in fact, in history, that's what happens. Three years on from the birth of this son, um, the capital is kind of destroyed. And 12 years on, Israel ceased to exist. It's conquered by Assyria. So this actually happened in history. It's, it's well recorded. Now, this short-term sign is sort of like an arrow. If you imagine an archer pulling it back, it's launched by this smaller fulfillment of God's promise in the immediate sense through this son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Aram, Israel, God promised to take care of them. He did. But ultimately, it finds its target in another boy who, born of a virgin, signals God's rescue from, from all of God's enemies, even sin and death itself. And Matthew gives us this fulfillment in Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And they actually name him Jesus. They call him Emmanuel, and his name is Jesus. So God does keep his promises. It's one of the, the, the major points here. 
2 Samuel 7, that promise is not broken by his people's unfaithfulness. God is faithful to it. And then finally, in verse 17, the, the, the teaching ends with this devastating announcement. After all this talk of a sign, Ahaz may have been feeling pretty good. Like, okay, it's all going to work out. It's going to be fine. But no, says Isaiah, it won't. Ahaz has trusted in Assyria, so let him have Assyria. Let him have his God. Eventually, the house of David's misplaced trust in this the superpower, instead of Yahweh, it's going to be their demise. And Israel, Judah, becomes a vassal to Assyria and then exiled uh, by the Babylonians. So what's our takeaway? Uh, how do we get practical with all of this? That God is patient and gracious? Yes. That he works in history? Yes. That he keeps his promises? Yes. But more than anything, we've been given this, this very practical story the story of Ahaz in Assyria, that invites us, I think, to consider our own, consider the object of our own faith, our own hope. I mean, if we replace the northern armies of Assyria marching towards us, the march towards Ahaz's throne, if we replace that with our own fears, our own enemies, threats to our own welfare, what do we do? Let's return to those five stories, a body not working the way it should. A marriage failing, a suffocating schedule, an abiding loneliness, an addiction. Where do we go? Who do we turn to? Now, I hope we turn to God's good gifts, like, like therapy. I hope we go to therapists and pastors and, and doctors, medicine, friends, exercise. I mean, of course, we turn to those places. But we must begin by going to Emmanuel. That's the invitation of Isaiah. We must begin by going to God. As James and Jesse and I have all said over these past three weeks, trusting God does not mean the immediate end of hardship. It means, it means a soul-sustaining companionship with God, with Him in the midst of hardship, a, a soul-strengthening hope for the happy ending, you know, the happy ending of that light is going to dawn, the desert is going to bloom. God promised Emmanuel, and Emmanuel has indeed come. God is now, in the most intimate way, with us. He came just as he said he would, and he conquered this, this twin-fanged enemy of Aram and Israel, but sin and death now have also been conquered by him. So please don't let the familiarity of this season or this statement, God with us, numb you to this reality. Throughout the scriptures, God is a God who longs to be with us. It's like the defining thing about God throughout the Old and New Testaments. He longed to be with Adam and Eve in the garden. He longed to be with, with Israel in the wilderness through the tabernacle. He longed to be with Israel in the promised land through the temple. The presence of God with his people is, is the heart of God's people's experience. Isaiah 43 drives this point home. Verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord who created you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And immediately when you read that, maybe your minds go to Daniel 3 where God exemplifies this message from the psalmist. When King Nebuchadnezzar had thrown Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, this king was amazed when he looked into the furnace and he sees a fourth man standing in the midst of the fire. And in Daniel 3, verse 24, he says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
In, in, uh, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller says that the incarnation of God in our midst is God walking into the furnace with us. In taking on flesh, God took on diapers and hunger pangs and sunburns. You know, no doubt Jesus knew the sting of, of accidentally hitting his thumb with a hammer. And he certainly knew the emotional sting of rejection from friends and family. More to the point, he took, he took lashes into his skin, thorns into his scalp, iron lashes, iron splinters into his wrists. And like all of us will, he, he took a last breath. Our own sin drowning him in, in fear and sorrow. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So condemned to die, Jesus went into the furnace alone to suffer not just with us, but to suffer for us. And this is why you must turn to Emmanuel, God with us in this Advent, this time of hardship and longing for many of you, because all the, the, the merriment and wonder out there in the world, it doesn't have to be just a vague distraction from another long and hard year. It, it has ancient roots. It has historical reality. It has a name, Emmanuel. And his presence is, is, is what we need, absolutely what we need most. In C.S. Lewis's words, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. You know, the first verb Jesus uh, used of Jesus in the gospel is came. He is the God who comes. And when you remember and you see and know that Jesus went into the ultimate furnace for you, you can begin to sense him in the furnaces of life with you now. And slowly, you can become a little less like Ahaz. I mean, listen, we all have a little Ahaz in us. But slowly, God with us, God for us, God in us by his spirit, it can train us and woo us into trusting him instead of the oncoming armies. It can, it can sustain us in the fire because he's with us, can cause us, our hearts even to bloom with hope and trust in the midst of suffering. Because light will dawn and heal our broken bodies. A shoot will grow and restore even our felled friendships and relationships. The desert of our dry and weary hearts will bloom as a flower garden. How do we know? Emmanuel has come. God is with us. Now, sometimes this hope feels, feels close to our hearts, and sometimes it doesn't. It's part of the struggle of the season. Sometimes we feel this. We're in worship, and oh, yes, absolutely. And other times we're just weeping because we don't. What do we do in those seasons when it's hard to hope and it's, it's easy to despair? I want to suggest two things. Well, there's many things, but I'm just going to, I have time for two. The first thing is take the sacrament seriously. For 2,000 years, the church has been saying to God's people that this bread and wine is a sure and certain sign that the Son of God is with us and for us. He is present here, giving himself to you. You do not have to feel it to receive it. So this morning, just take that seriously. God is with you. He is giving himself to you in a very real spiritual way this morning. He's feeding you and nourishing you with his presence. And second, pray. You know, the incarnation is ultimately a mystery not to be fully understood. I mean, we can walk a little ways into that fog, get a little further than we might suspect, but eventually we get to a place where the fog is impenetrable and we can go no farther and we just bow in mystery. And that's why in this season, it's, the church is so full of, of art and poems and songs. You know, what can we do but wonder and adore this child in the manger? The incarnation cannot be calculated. It, it must be apprehended through faith. How do we do that? Primarily through prayer. 
And so I want to invite us to do that now. In closing, I want to invite you to, to close your eyes and to just hear this prayer. Let this prayer kind of wash over you. This Advent prayer comes from the Iona community's uh, Cloth for the Cradle. When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. You crept in beside us and no one knew. Will you do the same this Christmas, Lord? Will you come into the darkness of tonight's world? Not the friendly darkness, as when sleep rescues us from tiredness, but the fearful darkness in which people have stopped believing that war will end, or that food will come, or that a government will change, or that the church cares. Will you come into that darkness and do something different to save your people from death and despair? Will you come into the quietness of this town, not the friendly quietness as when lovers hold hands, but the fearful silence when the phone has not rung, the letter has not come, the friendly voice no longer speaks, and the doctor's face says it all? Will you come into that darkness and do something different, not to distract, but to embrace your people? And will you come into the dark corners and the quiet places of our lives? We ask this not because we are guilt-ridden or want to be, but because the fullness of our lives, the fullness that our lives long for, depends upon us being as open and vulnerable to you as you were to us when you came, wearing no more than diapers and trusting human hands to hold their maker. Will you come into our lives if we open them to you and do something different. When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. You crept in beside us. Do the same this Christmas, Lord. Do the same this Christmas, Emmanuel. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.